as most of you know, uh, my, my home flooded a couple of times in hurricane. And, and one of the things that we did after uh, the, the second time, at least, is we decided to start thinking, what are we going to do to prevent us from being in this position again? We can't stop rainwaters from coming, but we can make decisions as a family that would put us in positions that are different. For instance, not living five miles away from your house while you're working on your house would be really helpful for us. And so one of the solutions we thought about and we thought about since Imelda was we need to buy an RV. We, we have to. Like, it's, it's just one of those. It's not just a fun thing to do. Like, I don't know anything about RVs. I went RVing once when I was eight or so. Um, but but I just I, I feel like if I had an RV, I could protect my family a little bit. I can uh, we, we can do some things. And so right after uh, COVID uh, started back in March, uh, my wife and I, we, we had been looking and, and she found one that she liked and, and we got it. And I'm scared to death. I don't even have the right trailer hitch for this thing. I'm not ready for it at all. And so I go buy all the things I need and I'm towing something I have no business towing because I've never towed something that's more than 25 feet before. And uh, we get it home and, and, and we, we decide, okay, before the first hurricane, we don't want to, we don't want to get caught blindsided. We need to prepare. We need to know how to RV. So we need to plan a trip. So immediately after getting this RV, we plan our first trip to figure out all of the bells and whistles of this, this thing. And at the time it's really still intimidating. It's kind of scary, but, but we pack everything we think we're going to need. And a few things we found out later, we definitely don't need, which is what you tend to do. You just overpack stuff. And, uh, we get on the road and I live, uh, not to put on the internet where I live, but I live as far, uh, out of Nederland right before I can throw a rock and hit Beaumont city limit sign. Like I'm right there. And, uh, we, we load up the RV, we, we hook it up and we drive and the kids are in the back. Uh, my wife is in the passenger seat and we're going and And before we get on I-10, it's silent. And my wife, she has this long, distant look in her eyes. They kind of look that you've just kind of been sitting in a prairie for like, I, I don't know, like staring at like, you know, butterflies and reminiscing and praying. She just, she just says, you know, she calls me Jay. She says, you know, Jay, I've had a wandering spirit since I was 14 years old. And I thought, what? We've been married for 11 years. I didn't know you had a wandering spirit. This is new information to me. And I found out right then that this RV is unlocking something in our family and our, uh, not just our relationship, but also in the things that we can do. And so we had a great time on that trip. Uh, it turns out she does have a wandering spirit. We have gone since that first trip in March, we've gone about to, I'd say about eight to 10 trips since then. Just like if we get two days that we can string together, we just go somewhere and, and you go to these RV parks and uh, I don't know if you've ever been RVing before. There's like, if you have an RV in your driveway, that's cool. But if you go to an RV park, it's a different world. Like people will invite you into their trailer that you just met 10 minutes ago. Like, Hey, come on in. You want to see my slide? I, th- I didn't even know what a slide was. I thought it was gonna be like a water park when I got in there. Turns out the living room slides out. I don't know if you knew that or not. And, and you go and like, you just turn the kids loose and they ride their bikes. They, they go and everything about this RV that we got to kind of support our family. We got to kind of overcome some obstacles that we were maybe anticipating during a, a future hurricane, uh, unlocked this other thing where there was all this freedom. There was something different. It was, it was fun. Even, even this last hurricane, Hurricane Laura that came, we thought was going to square off on us. My family and I, we packed up the RV and for $40 a night, we stayed somewhere. My family was safe. They were protected. My kids had fun, caught a bunch of fish, oh, monster catfish. Ask me about it later. Huge things. Couldn't eat them though. Uh, and, and my, my family had a good time. And I realized then that this RV kind of changes the way I think about my family, think about how I do things, how I prepare for future events. Now, Pat asked me to come and teach about the tabernacle, and you're thinking, Jesse, that's a whole lot of things about the RV, but don't mistake how weird and new and fresh the tabernacle was to the first Israelites who, who were told how to do it. It is a mobile temple in the ancient Near East. 
If, if you're going to follow any god anywhere in the ancient Near East, you needed a geographic location to start putting stones to build a temple and an altar, and it stayed put. And if anybody came and captured your territory, your land, they, they captured your god, they would take your, your, your idol out of there and go, and, and you're just stuck without your religion, without your god, without whatever, whatever your family was there. You, you were scared, I, I would imagine, if war hit that. But then God tells the Israelites, I want you to build me a tabernacle. And what we're going to see in a few moments, I'm going to, I'm going to explain some of the, 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 the functions of the tabernacle, but it becomes this mobile temple. You can't conquer a people with a mobile temple. You, you move into the land, the field that they've set up camp, and they grab their camp and they grab their temple and they go away. And it turns out their God follows them with them wherever they go. And this is unheard of in the ancient Near East. This is like new theological technology that's just been invented just for the Israelites because they became a mobile worshiping group of people and they traveled through the wilderness. God was with them no matter where they went as they travel through the wilderness. And it turns out they're going to travel for 40 years in the desert. And you guys know the story. There's manna and there's quail. There's a lot of things that are happening in the wilderness. But they had their tabernacle with them the entire time. Uh, Dave, I'm going to ask you to, to help me out uh, on some of the screens. Let's look at this word tabernacle. The word tabernacle in Hebrew is mishkan. Mishkan means uh, a dwelling place or to dwell. If you use it as a noun, it's, a, it's the place that you dwell. Uh, if you use it as a verb, it means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mishkan at your house for a little while, whether you like it or not. I'm going to come dwell at your house. Uh, we'll, I'll eat your food. You know, we'll, we'll just hang out. To dwell with someone, I, I like the, the imagery of that. Some of, you, uh, some of you have really artistic homes and you have like art up and you might have like the word dwell because there's something really homey about the word dwell. It's not just your residence. It's not just your tax write-off. It's where you dwell. It's where you live. It's where you spend time. It's where, it's where you and the people who dwell with you get to know each other and, and become one family and one group. And what God has told the Israelites, so I'm gonna, I want you to build a tabernacle. I want you to build a dwelling place so that I can come and dwell among you. And we're going to get to know each other for this next little while. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna understand each other. Look at this. In Exodus 25, uh, God says this. He says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell, Mishkan, that I might dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And then what you see for the rest of Exodus, we're talking the last third of the book of Exodus, is an entire blueprint of the tabernacle. God is going to say, I want you to make a dwelling place and I'm going to dwell amongst you. And, you know, we're going to get to know each other, um, but you're going to make this dwelling place not how you want to make it. You're going to make this dwelling place by the pattern that I am going to give you. And it's a very specific pattern. It's like, it's like, uh, I don't, I don't know if you, uh, I don't know how many of you like get really nerdy about ancient religions and stuff. It's always interesting to me that how ancient religions, they sort of, they sort of make up whatever the religious thing is going to be to do the thing that they were already going to do or wanted to do anyway. Like if, if you're, if you're a drinker, uh, an alcoholic, like it'd be really handy to have a God of alcohol that you can go worship by drinking alcohol, right? And so you would just make it up and you would just go and do this thing. And God's like, I'm, I'm not that kind of God. I'm not the kind of God that you get to tell who I'm going to be or how you're going to worship me or what kind of behaviors I'm going to, I'm the kind of God who tells you who I am. And in this tabernacle, in this unveiling of the tabernacle, he reveals to the Israelites in new and fresh ways, uh, his character, what, what he expects of his people, how high his standard is. What does holiness really mean? And God wants to demonstrate that through the tabernacle. 
Now, we, we are 21st century Gentiles. Uh, I don't know that anybody in here has a Jewish heritage. Maybe you do. Uh, I, for me, uh, the tabernacle is it's a word that I don't really recognize well. I don't, I don't have like a framework for it. Uh, it seems old and like a different way of doing things. In, in some ways, when we look at the tabernacle, you might think, well, you know, the God that we worship today is nothing like that. The sacrificing of the goats and the, there's blood here and there's like this tent that nobody can go into. God, God's nothing like that. They just, maybe, maybe they just thought that out of ignorance. No, what we have today as 21st century Christians is the blood of Christ who has redeemed so much of the, all this law. And we have a different way of approaching the throne. And so what you might think is, oh, they just didn't know better. It's actually, this is the way that God said, you will do business with me this way until which time a different price is paid. And so notice uh, he says in all of its furniture, I want to spend probably the next 20 minutes. I just want to look at some of the furniture. Anybody like Ikea shoppers? You, you, you want to like none of this is going to be in, in Swedish or whatever language Ikea is in. But I want to look at some of the furniture. I want to look at like why God was so specific about that furniture in that location for that function. He left nothing to guess. There was never a moment where someone was like, you know, I think this could use a blue coat of paint. Mm -mm. No, not for God. God was very specific. If you read the end of Exodus and Leviticus, the colors of it, the size of it, the dimensions of it, the function of it, everything is laid out perfectly. Uh, this is uh, out of the Holman uh, uh, Bible uh, Dictionary. This is like an illustration of what the tabernacle might have looked like. Uh, in, the, in the desert, notice people kind of hanging out outside the walls of the, of the tabernacle. And everything in those uh, walls, uh, outside those walls is just, you know, normal land. But if you go inside those walls, you're in the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. Inside the walls, those little uh, uh, cloth walls is what's called the courtyard. Uh, and you see the smoke that's kind of burning in the middle. That is the, the altar. And then right behind that is a water basin. And then you have that square box. It's really, you know, like dark and that's the holy place. And inside the holy place is another smaller, darker place called the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. Now this is like, I love me some Indiana Jones. So this is going to be good. Uh, in Israel right now, uh, if you go to the Southern end of Israel, there is uh, someone like put together a monument, maybe a museum, you would say. This is a life-size tablet tabernacle that's just propped up there. You can go visit it. Uh, you can hire a guide, either a Jewish guide to give you all the Jewish perspective of the tabernacle, or you can actually, in Israel, hire a Christian guide and give you a Christian perspective of it. And so this is a real uh, life replica, a real photo of what the tabernacle might have looked like with the colors. And look how beautiful this would be. Imagine if you're in the desert. I don't know if you've driven through a desert. There's not a lot of colors in a desert. And you're just like cruising along. You're riding your camel. You've never heard of the Israelites. And you're around a corner. And you're like, there is a blue curtain hanging in the middle of the desert. Let's ride up and see what's going on there. The tabernacle, like I said, had three parts, the courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies. Let's pretend we're all outside the walls, right? And you can see into the courtyard. I want to look at a few things that are inside the courtyard specifically. The first is the altar of burnt offerings, the altar of burnt offerings. If you were to be in right standing with God, there had to be a sacrifice for your sin. And what you would do is that you would take your goat, your lamb, your, your sacrifice, something of equal value, and you would go to just outside the courtyard and you would slaughter that animal right there. And you would hand that animal that you slaughtered out of your herd, out of your, you know, pack. I don't, I don't know what these 
groups of animals are called. And you would, you, would, you would hand that to a priest. And a priest would take your offering of blood and the fat of this animal and take it to this place right here and would burn it on that grate. Would take the blood and wipe it on the, the horns of that altar as a, uh, an atonement. The word atonement means covering, a covering of your sin. And the priest's job, the Levites, who, who would go in and out of this place, their only job is to help you, the common person, do business with God. So let's say you are, um, you're out and uh, you accidentally uh, stole a, a lamb out of someone else's herd and you really financially hurt them. You've sinned against them and against God. You would, you would maybe take one of your own lambs to the priest and say, I've, I've sinned against God. I, I, need to, I need to sacrifice. And the priest is like, all right, slaughter that sucker. Slaughter it and would bring the, the, the remains of the altar to this location and would burn that. Leviticus Five talks about the altar this way. It says, if anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it. So even if the sin occurred and you were like, nobody told me that rule. Well, just like Pat said last week, it's not the cop's job to tell you the stop sign was there, right? So even if the sin happens and you're like, oh, I didn't even know that was one of the rules, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. And so at the very beginning of Jewish thought and their relationship with God is this understanding that like, I've got things in me that aren't quite right, don't quite match up to God's standard. We would call those sin. Uh, and, and, and you would, you, when you became aware of it, the Bible says in Leviticus that they would bear their iniquity. That is painful to think about. Those of us who just finished singing about how the blood of Christ paid for our iniquity and we don't have to bear our iniquity because he paid for that. And then you read that the understanding of the Jewish people is that they, they felt the burden of their, their breaking relationship with God. It says that they would bear, uh, he would bear his iniquity. And keep going in uh, verse 18. It says, he shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock. That's the word I was looking for. Not, not a pack of goats. It's a flock. Uh, a blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement. That word means covering for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally. And he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. And so everything about the law, the beginning of the tabernacle is if you're looking in the entrance, the first thing you see is this altar. And this altar reminds you that my people, the people that I live with aren't perfect. Neither am I. And every time I have to do business with God, I have to, have to, first, like, I have to find something to, to pay for this, this problem that I have. And I'd have to trust, because I'm not allowed to go in the courtyard. I, I didn't mention this, but if you're not a Levite, you couldn't even go to where the altar is. So you had to trust that this priest, who you, here's the line, and you hand him the goat that you just slaughtered. You have to trust that he's going to do exactly what the, the word says that he did. And you would watch. You'd probably sit back and watch, like, did you get that third horn? I don't, I don't know. It's like, it's like you, you baseball fans, you're like, I don't think you touched second base. I don't think you touched that second horn. He, 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 okay, did you do it? Just, okay, okay, I feel, I did everything that the word says. I feel like, uh, I feel like I've done what I can to ask God's forgiveness. But these priests, they're not perfect either. We'll read about that here in a moment. But you have, you have the, the altar. And I always imagine, like, that, that tent was, the walls of the courtyard, rather, were only so high. And you're kind of in a mountainy area. I feel like if I were a kid, and I'm just one of the common people, I'm like of the tribe of, you know, Benjamin or something. I don't know, I picked one. One that wouldn't be in there. And I'm probably going to go park up on a hill every now and then. And I'm going to watch this activity happening. Uh, anybody here grill meat, grill food? 
You got a pit at home, probably doing something this weekend. Am I right? Good three-day weekend. It's time to put some brisket on, something like that. They're, they're grilling animal here. They're, they're cooking constantly. It was a barbecue pit in the front of the tabernacle. And if I'm a kid, I'm sitting back there, and I'm, I'm smelling that, and I'm thinking, another one of my people around me isn't perfect. Was it you, John? Hey, was it you? No, it was him. Oh, Mark, yeah, okay. I don't know why I'm picking Bible characters. Uh, but everybody around us needs a burnt offering, and you're constantly saying, you see your mom and dad go? You're just a kid on the hill watching, like, oh, I wonder what dad did. <laughs> no, that's why he's sleeping on the couch. He goes, make him burnt offering. He's okay. And, and this is constantly, the business of the tabernacle never stopped. It wasn't just a Sunday or a Saturday or just a Sabbath thing. It was constantly happening every day. The Bible says that the priest, without, without the sin offerings that would happen from time to time, every morning and every night were making sacrifices on this altar. Every morning you would smell fresh something getting cooked. Oh, yeah, yeah, God, God, God said that's how we atone for things. Every night before you go to bed, something else is thrown on the altar and you smell it. It's just this constant reminder of God is perfect and we're not, and we're going to do this forever forever and ever, and just trust that the priests get it right, because who knows what they're doing once they get behind that, that tent. Let's keep going. Also, uh, right behind the, uh, the altar uh, of, of uh, burnt offerings, you have the wash basin. Now, as a germaphobe, I love, can we, can we get that wash basin up, please, Dave? I'm having a problem here. Uh, a problem with this, not mental problems. Uh, I, I love that the, the wash basin is there, because you have, you have the, the priest who had to take this animal, and there's blood, and there's you know, all the gross things, and, and handle the business of the sacrifice. And, and that handles for the atonement. It's payment for the sins of the people. But, but now he's covered in the marks of it. He's covered in, he's, he's filthy. And so right behind the altar is a place where he can wash his hands. So this, this is filled with, with water. And uh, he, he washes his hands and he gets himself clean. The Bible says that before he can go into the, holies, uh, the holy place, he has to uh, uh, wash himself. God was a big fan of washing hands long before COVID made it a thing. Uh, in Exodus, uh, I'm just going to read this. It's not going to be on the screen. But Exodus uh, chapter 30, verse 17, I just want you to hear about this wash basin. It says, uh, 17 through 19, it says, The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze. With it, stand, uh, with it stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. Don't put it off to the side. You don't get to tuck it away. You don't get to build a house for it. He's like, I want it right here. I want it. You got the altar? Right behind it is the wash basin. With which Aaron and his sons, these are the, the first priests, Aaron was the first high priest, Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, that, that big building in the back, you can see it in the background right there. Uh, when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. This is a real risk here. They shall wash with their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. So if you're that kid on the hill and you're watching these sacrifices happen, your uncle brings the goat, the, the, the priest comes out, washes his hands on the altar, grabs the remains of the goat, goat, takes it to the altar, handles his business there for, for your uncle's sins. And then before the priest can do anything, he has to go wash his hands again. He washes his hands in the basin and then he goes about his business and another goat comes away, he has to wash his hands. And constantly these priests are going back and forth, handling the business of the people as their relationship with God is forming, constantly washing their hands. God, God was very specific. 
in this. And you may think like, you know, man, why, why is, like, if you read Leviticus, you think this is just like rule after rule after rule. What we need to learn from all of these specifics is that God's character isn't movable. We don't get to change it. We don't get to guess what he likes and what he doesn't like. He determines by his very nature what is righteous and what is holy, what is expected of us. Not, not because of something we want to do. And he lays this out as a, a, a blueprint for his people to follow. So in his grace, he, he doesn't just say, I have standards that are really big. In his grace, he says, here is a, a detailed explanation of these standards. And I want you to understand who I am through them. So that kind of explains the, the courtyard. Let's go to the next place, and this is the holy place. Now, uh, in, that, in that picture, it was the, the, the box in the, in the middle of the courtyard, and there's a smaller box inside of that. So we're going to talk about the outer part of the box. It's called the holy place. In the holy place is this guy. This is a lampstand. Uh, we might call it a menorah. Uh, I've heard candelabra is also a word for that. This sucker was pretty big. Uh, that's probably about five and a half feet tall. I looked it up and now I can't remember what it was, but it's, it's, it's a big honking lamp. And inside the holy place, this is the only source of light. That and the altar I'm going to look at here in a second had some embers in it, but pretty much you don't have a flashlight, you know, you don't go in there and turn the lights on. You, you had this lamp and it burned with oil. And so one of the things that the priest had to do was constantly make sure this lamp didn't burn out. They're constantly putting oil in it and keeping it going. I want to read something about this lampstand. I love this. Exodus, uh, it's not going to be on the screen, but Exodus 25. Uh, let's see here. Verses 31 through 40. L listen to this. This is great. It says, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. Now, this is a replica. I don't know where they made that out of, but it's not pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes. Don't know what a calyx is. And its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out from its sides, three branches of the lampstand out one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms and their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair. You guys following this? You, you get ready to make this at home, aren't you? Uh, under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand, their calyxes and their branches, branches shall be of one piece with it. The whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. This is one solid piece of gold that you had to trust one of your hammering compadres to go and hammer out to follow this blueprint exactly. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. So even the things that you use to work with it are made of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for, uh, for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. Out of a talent of pure gold. Um, I had to look up what a talent was, to be honest with you. I'm sure they covered it somewhere in Bible college. A talent is 75 pounds, roughly, average, 75 pounds. That is 75 pounds of solid gold they made a lamp out of to light up a room. Because God says, I'm worth it. 75 pounds, that's one talent. 
which really gives like a really great insult. Like if you're just kind of feeling salty one day and like you're talking to your friend, she's like, hey, does this dress, you know, look good on me? You're like, you look so talented. And, and she's like, oh, thank you. I don't know why I'm talented because the talent's worth 75 pounds. You guys aren't feeling salty. That's okay. That's all right. I feel like I, feel like I could get one like, uh, over on someone with that, but you're just more righteous than me. The lampstand is the only source of light and constantly the priests are having to fill the oil so they can do business inside the Holy of Holies. One of the things that they would do in the Holy of Holies is go to this table of showbread. Every uh, Sabbath, there are 12 loaves of bread put on the table of showbread uh, with some frankincense and some other things. And every Sabbath, the priests would go into the Holy of Holies, or excuse me, the holy place, and they would eat one loaf of bread, one for each of the 12 tribes. And as they're eating it, they're thinking about that tribe over there, tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of uh, uh, Zerubbabel. I'm, I'm trying to think of some of the other tribes. Each one they're thinking about. If you're that kid on the mountain, you're watching this happen. You see your priest go behind the curtain of that holy place. And it's like, what, what are they even doing in there? Are they, are they praying for me? Are they thinking about me? And every Sabbath they would eat the bread and then they would replace it. And then for a week, that bread would just sit there. And every time a priest would walk into the holy place, I, I would assume he would look and he would see the bread and he would, he would think of the, the tribe. He would think of his business on being able to serve uh, his people. Let me keep going. I'm going to run out of time. Inside also the holy place is this altar of incense. It's like a smaller version of the altar that was outside and there were embers inside of it. In fact, the fire for this came from the fire outside. The priests, before the fire would go out in here, they would have to take those little tongs and they'd go out to the fire that's been being kept burning all this time from all the sacrifices of all the sin. And they would take the, the fire and they would bring it into the altar of incense. And this now is making a different smell because the outside one smells like a barbecue, but inside it's aromatic. It's a little smokier because it's a closed place and you would, you would just feel different when you walked into this area. If you're into like, uh, uh, what are those little fog machines that teachers put in their classroom? Like make the kids calm down. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know what those are called. Uh, if you're into that kind of thing, you would love what the Israelites were doing back here. They, they would have their incense and they would, they would burn it and they would, they would, uh, worship in that way. You would go in there every Sabbath to eat the bread and think of the people and you're smelling the smell. If you, if you have like a, a, a smell that brings you back to another place, like a smell you smell and it brings you back to grandma's house or you're eating cookies, this smell probably did that. Every time they smelled that, they think about that time they prayed for somebody and would, would get where they were going. This also served one other important uh, piece in uh, Leviticus four. Uh, remember the priests I said are not perfect. And when the priests sinned, which happened, they had to pay for their sins as well. But if a priest sins, they don't go to themselves to pay for their sin. They, they can't pay for their own sin. So here's, here's how it would work for them. Uh, Leviticus 4, 1 through 12 says it this way. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about the things not to be done and does any of them, it is... Uh, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people. Could you imagine? Like you, you, you always go to your priest, Frank. Hey, Frank, I've got a sacrifice for you. Every, every time you sin, you get Frank. And then all of a sudden you f see Frank mess up. And you're like, come on, Frank, you're my priest, man. He sinned and he brings guilt upon all the people. He can't handle your business because he has business to handle. So here's what Frank has to do. 
says, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Not just a goat. He go get a bull. These are valuable creatures if you're a, a cattle person. And he shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay hands on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. Whenever you and I, the common people, would have sinned, we would bring our sacrifice to the entrance of the courtyard. The priest would pass the courtyard and go all the way to the entrance of the holy place. And he would kill that bull there. Now, I don't know if you've ever like slaughtered an animal, deer hunters. Uh, it's not the cleanest thing in the world. And they're slaughtering this bull in a place that's been set apart. And the only reason it has to be done and the only reason they have to spend weeks cleaning it up is because this priest who was handling the sin business of all the people couldn't keep his life together either. And he had to handle his sin business and it made a terrible mess in front of the altar and it had to be cleaned. Now here, here's what else it says. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hands on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest, the one presumably who isn't sinning at this point, and the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger on the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. Now this priest sin who made a terrible mess in the courtyard is changing the smell in the holy place because it's been burning incense all this time, but now it's burning blood blood because someone sinned who shouldn't have sinned. And it's all terribly tragic, but God is righteous and he's holy and somebody has to pay for this. And this is the way they did it. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent meeting. He would kill the bull between the basin and in the, the, the holy place, he would take some of the blood to this altar and he would take the rest of the blood and pour it out to, at the other altar. I've never slaughtered a bull. I have no idea how long it takes to pour out the blood. I would imagine it's not just a, I'm done. You're there for a minute. You're making a mess. And all of your people around you are like, come on, Frank, man, we, 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 we've, we've had four days without an incident. OSHA, sign right there. And now you've sinned. And what are we going to do, man? What are we going to do? And Frank's like, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not perfect. And God gave me this way to pay for this sin, and I'll help you clean it up. Let's just, let's just do this together. And every day, the people of Israel did this. Every day, they would do their business with God. But before they could come boldly to the throne of God, as we would say as Christians, they had to handle their business. The last part of the tabernacle, or excuse me, uh, Psalm 141.2 grabs this imagery. Uh, David writes this, he says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you in the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. That incense altar, he's like, it smelled so good coming out of there. Lord, let my prayers that I'm praying to you about this problem that I'm having be just like that incense that was in your holy place. Let it be like that. And when I raise my hands, let it be like the sacrifice that the priest would do every night. And it would just be pleasing in your eye. Let me go quick. There's a veil that's separating the holy place from the holy of holies. Uh, Notice the little angel thing on the veil. That is actually in scripture. Uh, God called it a cherubim. And uh, the cherubim is only mentioned one time before this, and it's in the Garden of Eden. You know, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and it says that he put two cherubim guarding the space. And so a lot of people read Genesis and Exodus as kind of like a, it kind of comes back to where the tabernacle represents a small version of what Eden could have been and should have been. Yet there's still being blocked out. Uh, Nobody goes beyond this veil except one guy, 
the uh, high priest, and he can only go there on one day of the year. So for 364 days, unless it's a leap year, which they didn't have then, but for 364 days, nobody went in this room. Just the smells of whatever the incense were going over there. And then, and then on Yom Kippur, the high priest would go and pay for the sins of all of the nation. Take them before God in this holy of holy place. Inside the veil is the Ark of the Covenant. It's a big box with angels on it. The angels' wings kind of come together, make what's called the mercy seat. And so what you're looking at is not just the Ark of the Covenant, but you're also looking at the mercy seat. Um, if you watch Indiana Jones, it looked like this. They did a really good job on it. Uh, there's Indy right there. God bless him. Uh, it, it's really close to the, to the one that, you know, meets the description. I think they did a good job with it. And inside the box... God had, go to the inside of the box, please, Dave, if it doesn't go. Inside the box were the stone tablets with the law written on it that Moses pulled off of the mountain, uh, a bowl of manna to remind them that God provided for them in the wilderness, and the staff of Aaron right there, that wood staff, to show that God chose the people that would be his priesthood. And what you have in this imagery, uh, back up two, please. What you have in this imagery is a box that holds the covenant, that holds the contract that God has made with the people, that reminds them that I can't measure up, I keep messing up, this is the thing that I'm sitting against. And then just above it is the mercy seat, the imagery being that God would sit upon the mercy seat and have mercy on the people who, who, can't, who can't quite get it together, can't quite get it right. And every year, the high priest would go and sprinkle blood on this mercy seat as a way to ask God forgiveness for that. So every day, there are two sacrifices minimum happening, plus the sacrifices of all the sins of the people. And every year, all the people would get together and hope the high priest wouldn't get himself killed by walking into this room in a manner that was unworthy, just praying and hoping, please, just for one more year, get us through this, make our relationship right with God. And this happened year after year after year, day after day, you're the kid sitting on the hill watching this happen over and over. And there's got to be a moment where some of the people are like, what are we going to do with this? You're probably thinking right now, good Lord, Jesse, when are you going to get through the tabernacle? When are we going to get through this? This is painful. It is painful because it looks at God's righteousness and what he expects of us. But there's Jesus. Here's, here's what I love. John uh, chapter 1, verse 14. Dave, if you can help me, please. Here it is. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt. That is the same word for tabernacle. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came and tabernacled with us because we could never live up to the measure of the tabernacle or the temple. We, John says we've seen his glory. Remember, John was up on the, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. And he actually sees Jesus, and there's like Moses, and there's like this whole moment, and they were ready to build a new tabernacle there. And Jesus is like, no, you got it wrong. We're tabernacling a different way right now. We're going to dwell in a different way. That God, the sovereign Lord, who demanded holiness and righteousness before you could even approach the courtyard, says, I've got something different coming. And in just the same way that the RV opened up a new way for my family and the tabernacle opened a new way for the Israelites to have a relationship with God. Now Jesus shows them and says, I've got even a newer way in which we're going to do relationship with God. He came and he dwelt among us. The author of Hebrews says this. Now, after everything you've learned about the tabernacle and the altar and the basin and the washing and the paying for sins, the author of Hebrews takes all that imagery and says that Jesus figured this out. Jesus is a better version of all of this. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that veil that is through his flesh, 
And since we have a great priest, a high priest, not Frank, Frank messes up. We have a great priest, his name is Jesus, over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What, what the author of Hebrews says is that Jesus' sacrifice takes care of the blood sacrifice that was needed every day, every morning, and every night, and every year to cover the sins of the people. He did it once for all. And then he became the high priest because he never sinned. He could handle the business of all of us without having to take care of his own problems first. And he can, he can, he can pay that price. And because of his sacrifice, the veil that separates us from God is no longer necessary we get to worship God in a freer way because Jesus chose to take on flesh and tabernacle amongst us. If you're an Israelite living in the desert and you needed to do business with God, you'd have to find wherever the tabernacle showed up that day. Like, oh, it's, it's right here in this valley. And last week it was like 10 miles away. It's here. But as believers in Christ, containers of the Holy Spirit, Christ tabernacling with us, where we go, God is there. People who are hurting, who, who, who are, are holding on to the guilt of their sin, don't have to go find a building far away in a valley. You carry the hope with you to them. Our people who see the tragedy that's going on across into Louisiana because of the hurricane, sees the hurting and the brokenness, and we don't go there and say, come on to Carpenter's Way, you got to find the building where God happens to be. No, 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 no. God tabernacles with us, and we carry with us this hope, and we get to bring it to them. Real quick, Revelation, remember the tabernacle was a new invention, theologically speaking, of a way to do business with God. And then Jesus comes and says, hey, I've got a new way, I'm going to tabernacle with you. But we're not even at the last chapter of this, because at the end of Revelation, God says, there's going to be a new way that we do business with each other, a new way that this relationship is restored. The author, John, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What a beautiful picture. If you've ever been to a beautiful wedding, and you see the bride and the, the groom turn with tears, seeing his beautiful bride, that's the imagery that, that God says we're going to have. It's that the bridegroom sees, sees the bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Who, who went to Louisiana uh, this week? Was there mourning? Was there crying? The day's going to come with that isn't even a possibility. A day's going to come where we look back and we say it's been 10,000 years since any of our houses flooded, since any of our family members died, since anyone was diagnosed with cancer. It's going to be such a long, distant memory that God is going to redeem all of creation because when he finishes what he started with creation, this is what we get to look forward to. No crying, no pain, 
former things they've passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I can't wait. I can't wait for new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I love that Jesus in his sovereignty, his knowledge, he has enough confidence in himself as a high priest that before the thing is done, he can declare it past tense done. (laughs) It's done. He's paid the price for this to accomplish. It is done for all these new things to happen. He says, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty I would give from the spring of life of water, uh, water of life without payment. You don't, you don't owe me anything at this point. I will just give it to you freely. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. It is a beautiful future, a beautiful relationship that we even get to look forward to beyond this moment. And he adds this warning at the end. He says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers and the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And a lot of preachers, they get up and they're like, ah, fire. ah," That was one verse out of 10. That was one tenth of the message. The message was good news, not, not a threat for all of us. If that seemed like really scary to you, Jesus paid the price so that we are cleansed from our sinfulness. And if there's anybody you know who is brokenhearted, the, the wrong thing to do is to take a message like this and say, ah, oh, you got to get right with God or you get the hellfire. What we should do is take on our uh, priesthood of the saints. We are now royal priesthood of the King of Kings, the Holy of Holies. He is the high priest and we are his priests. And just like the Israelites would take their sins to Frank and trust that he could help them do business with God, maybe our lost brothers and sisters and our friends and our family members who break our heart every day, maybe we should be the ones who are helping them do their business with God. Show them a way. Show them that a relationship with God is possible. Here's how I'm going to close. I'm six minutes over. Sorry, Pat. Jesus is a better priest than any of the royal priesthood in Leviticus, Exodus. He never sinned. He knows exactly what the Father wants. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He makes our path to God straight. We don't have to wait for Jesus to get his sins paid for before he can pay for ours. How humiliating would that be if you took your sacrifice because you cheated on your spouse? You took your sacrifice to the the, the tabernacle and you had to wait for Frank to pay for his sins before you can get yours paid for? You're just in line? And Jesus is like, no, I I have no waiting list. He is a better priest than what was there. Jesus is a better Moses. And if, uh, I don't don't mean that to be offensive if you're, if you're of Jewish background, but Moses was the one who was like detailing the ways of God so that he could, that we'd outline it. But Moses himself wasn't perfect and he didn't get it all the way right. I mean, he, he wrote the things right, but his life, it didn't reflect that rightly. And Jesus is a better redeemer, is a better communicator of what God wants from us. Jesus is a better sacrifice. You don't, you don't have to sacrifice every day for the rest of your life. You don't have to wait every year for the sacrifice of the people to be taken care of. It was taken care of 2,000 years ago on a cross, and it's still functioning. It's still working, and it's still redeeming people. And we're a room full of redeemed people who know, like, Jesus' sacrifice is better than that, right? Could you imagine? Like, you're trying to plan a trip with your family. You're like, i got to go to the temple and wait in line for Frank to get his business together. No, like, Jesus opens up a path. And Jesus is a better hope because all of the Old Testament tabernacle is hoping that the priest would take your business to God and they would relay back to you the message. But Jesus opens the path up so wide that you and I can go directly to the Father with boldness, 
with, with confidence and just say, God, I love you. Thank you because your ways are so much better than what I came from. Please, God, will you rescue my brother? Will you rescue my family? Will you, can you do this? You don't have to trust Frank to get it. You can go straight to the Father, not because of you and not because of how great you are, but because Jesus paid a price that was big enough. The tabernacle was an amazing way for the Israelites to learn to do business with God and learn the character of God. And make no mistake, God's character hasn't changed. He's still righteous and he's still holy. He still demands righteousness and holiness. It just so happens that we have a high priest named Jesus who is able to pay a big enough price for us. It covers all of our sins. We should be looking at Christianity as not some old stale thing that's been around for 2,000 years. It is a fresh and new way to do business with God that is freeing that is satisfying, that is hopeful. Let me pray for you, and then uh, you're dismissed. Lord, uh, this morning, we thank you that your way uh, is available to us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that the, the old system of having to, to, to constantly bear our own guilt um, is done away with because of Christ. And for those of us in here that, that have forgotten that, I pray that you would remind us that we are uh, uh, innocent because of Jesus, and we can, just, we can just ask for forgiveness, and, and we're free of that guilt. Lord, I pray for our friends and family who don't know that sweetness, who don't know that simplicity. Um, Lord, that we would be faithful priests to show them how to do business with you and how to, do, how to have a relationship with you. I pray for Carpenter's Way that we'd go out to the community, not just locally, but now to Louisiana, to those who are hurting. Father, that, that we, would, we would go out and your name would be magnified because we are faithful to spread your good news and to spread your hope. Lord, we love you. And I pray, Father, that this week um, we rest in our simplicity of relationship with you. We thank you for Jesus. This is the name we pray. Amen.